more of an introduction to Isaiah 53. It is one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. And so, because it is, we don't want to rush through it. There's so much richness in this particular chapter that uh, we're actually going to begin uh, building up to it. We've had a few weeks off in, uh, on, uh, on the book of Isaiah, and so I want to catch us up to where we need to be in entering into Isaiah 53. So let's read verses 1 through 6, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll get right into our study tonight. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. By the way, we're more than likely just going to focus on verse 1 tonight. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Shall we pray? Tonight, O Lord, our Father and our God, we turn to you for wisdom and understanding as we begin to study this most important and significant chapter in the lives of every believer. For us to truly understand, Lord, what these words mean and what they represent for us at the present time and what they will mean for those who have yet to hear the gospel or for those who have yet to respond to the gospel. May it be an encouragement to us to read and to study for the sake of preparation and in bringing the gospel, the message of good news to the lives of those who still to this day are lost and hopeless and without guidance and direction because they are dead in trespasses and sins. But Lord, we were there at one time as well. And we know the blessing of coming to the truth and the acceptance of the truth of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that this will stir us up to let others know that you are God and that you have sent your only begotten Son to this world. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is our desire, Lord, not only that we will grow in wisdom, grace, and knowledge, but that others will come to know who Jesus Christ is. And the words of this chapter we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It is hard to read a passage like this 
and be assured and encouraged that there are great advantages for mankind from such a memorable and apparently tragic event. The foretelling of Messiah's sufferings and the purpose for which he was to die. And yet when it is all put together, we have contained within this chapter the most beautiful summary and outline of the most unique and distinctive doctrines of the Christian faith. To better understand this chapter, we need to go back a few verses where, where this section of Scripture actually starts and understand the contrasts that are found within this passage. And of course, I refer to the last three verses of chapter 52. So if you just turn back a half a page or so and look at verse 13, and we'll read down through verse 15, where the prophet says, Behold... Actually, the prophet, in, in speaking forth the words of Almighty God, he says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard they shall consider. Now the contrasts are quite evident here in what we just read. For God's servant is described as both exalted, extolled and very high and as one whose visage was marred more than any man. You see that contrast. It begins with the understanding that he shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high, but then it tells us that his visage was so marred more than the sons of men. Another contrast. We are told that kings shall shut their mouths at him, and yet he is despised and rejected by men. Now these contrasts can be considered to be extreme and somewhat confusing. So when reading this whole passage, which is verses, uh, well, Isaiah 52 verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53, which is verse 12. An Ethiopian eunuch, when reading this, this particular passage, let Philip know that he could use some help in understanding what he was reading. If you turn all the way back to the book of Acts, and we didn't study this too long ago, so you might still remember uh, what we're studying on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, we find Philip running to this Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him, and the place in the scripture which he read was this He was led as sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, or before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Now stop there for a moment and realize that what we were just reading was out of Isaiah 53. So it's out of this whole passage that begins where we just read in Isaiah 52. Still all this whole section. And remember that in the Old Testament, if a person had a scroll, he didn't have chapter and verse. What he had was the section in front of him. So as he's reading this, he's saying, can you explain this to me? Is this speaking of himself as far as the prophet is concerned? Or is he speaking of some other man? 
Then Philip opened his mouth, it says in verse 35, and began, or in beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So he took this passage of scripture and began to apply everything that was said there to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is without any question the servant being described by Isaiah. Jesus is both exalted, extolled very high and marred more than any man. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, yet he is despised and rejected by men. The contrast still exi- you know, the, the contrast still exists today. While they existed, you know, 2,500 years ago. God's complete revelation of His only begotten Son in the New Testament will clear up any and all confusion. This is because Jesus fulfills both descriptions in His first and second comings to this earth. Now, of course, you know that we're waiting for His second coming, so He's fulfilled the first comings, or or the contrast of the first coming, and will fulfill the contrast of the second coming, or the contrast of the second coming. One way of organizing these contrasts, so it'll be a little better to understand, a little easier to understand. One way of organizing these contrasts is to look at them in this manner. So listen carefully. He came the first time and was despised and rejected by men. This resulted in his being marred more than any man at his crucifixion. When he comes a second time, Kings will shut their mouths at him because he will be exalted, extolled, and very high when he is crowned king of kings. And when he takes his seat on the throne in Jerusalem, on the throne of David. So you see how we can put together then the contrasts in both the first and second comings. Now, it's interesting that the chronological order of these verses in chapter 52, and I'm talking about verses 13 through 15, actually begin with verse 14. This is the chronological order. If you look at 13, 14, 15, you begin with 14, the people being shocked at his appearance, being marred more than any man. When did that take place? In preparation for the crucifixion, and of course on the, at the cross as well. And this is followed by his exaltation in verse 13. So in verse 13, we know that this is going to be fulfilled at his second coming. And then lastly is the startling message given by the servant in verse 15. Now, the road to the cross was paved by amazing prophecies concerning the suffering of Messiah, such as one we have previously studied. Take, for example, Isaiah 50, verse 6. If you turn back a few pages to Isaiah 50, verse 6, this is one of those prophecies that point to the suffering of Jesus. And the prophet speaks in such a way that he's speaking prophetically as to the things that Jesus would say at his own suffering. I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. We, we have to consider that when we look at the, the, uh, the, the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the, in the Gospels, in all four Gospels, there are certain things that are implied, but certain things that are made very clear in the Old Testament prophecies. So we could say then that at the cross or before the cross, as they were... Uh, uh, punishing Jesus as they were inflicting these stripes and doing all manners of things to his body that one of the things that they did was to pull out his beard anything to cause pain anything to bring that heightened sense of, of, of pain to his, his body It didn't matter. The Roman soldiers played blind man's bluff, putting a covering over his head and began to hit him and tell him, well, who was it that hit you? And so you see, 
all of these things, we could go back to Psalm 22. If, uh, you can do that later and see some of the things that we see in Psalm 22 that point directly to the cross. David's prophetically saying these things, yet they are, in fact, prophecies of the sufferings of Jesus. Now, the, the, the servant suffered and died. That's Jesus Christ. He is the servant. And I, and I want to refer back just to verse 13 of, of uh, Isaiah 52. That word, that first word, behold, behold. He sa- it says, take a good, long, strong look at my servant. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Behold, take a good look. Take a good, strong gaze. The servant suffered, and the servant died. But he didn't stay in that condition. He did not stay dead. And he promised that. Jesus promised that he wouldn't stay dead. He told his disciples a few times, I'm going to be taken in Jerusalem. And I'm going to die. But in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. Disciples didn't understand. But he was very clear to them. I'm not going to stay in that condition. The reason why he didn't stay in that condition is because of who he was. Not only was he the Son of God, was God the Son. The fact of the matter is the servant suffered died, but he didn't stay in that condition because he would be exalted, he would be extolled, and he would be very, made very high. And see, even since that day, every believer in Jesus Christ has done what? We have exalted the Lord. We have extolled His name. We have, placed him in a, we have placed Him in a place high above all things, above all creation. Why? Because He, Jesus Christ, was the Creator. All you have to do is read Colossians chapter 1. He was the Creator. He is Redeemer. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is Almighty God. He is Wonderful Counselor. He is Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is all these things, as the Bible says He is. And the phrase in verse 13, when it says, My servant shall deal prudently. While one meaning suggests dealing in wisdom, and that's, that's, you know, to deal prudently is to deal with wisdom. It can also be translated this way. When it says that my servant deals prudently it also means my servant is being successful in his endeavors to deal prudently means to be successful in one's endeavors and what may have looked like a humiliating defeat on the cross as some people even think today Jesus died on the cross there's no convincing some people that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. So that even then, as, as today, there are those who look at, at this crucifixion of Jesus as a humiliating defeat. And yet, it was a great victory in God's eyes. It was a great victory in God's eyes. If you read Colossians chapter 2, by the way, in verses 13 through 15... I've made reference to Colossians 1, but now look at Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. It says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Let me say it right. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now notice verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The the cross of Jesus Christ was a triumph. The cross of Jesus Christ was a victory. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we are in trouble. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we 
have no hope. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, there would be no hope whatsoever. We would be completely dead in our trespasses and sins and we would stay there. Which means we could never work our way to heaven and no one has come to do anything about it if Jesus didn't die on the cross. The fact of the matter is Jesus did die on the cross. That's our victory. But it's only our victory if we believe. If we believe this truth, it's our victory. It's our triumph. It's our joy. And I, and I, and I have to say this. I, I, I wonder what it takes to let, you know, to, to tell people, listen, you should be excited about knowing that Jesus dying on the cross set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Because He took on Himself our sins. I'm getting ahead of myself, that's okay. Y'all know this already, right? But the fact of the matter is, even Jesus Himself, Jesus foresaw the victorious end. It wasn't as if He was hoping it would end that way. He knew it would end that way. How do we know? Look at John 16, verse 33. These are words spoken before He goes to the cross. And Jesus says to His disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Folks, He hadn't even gone to the cross yet, yet He saw the victory. He could proclaim the victory because He knew that He had come in the Father's will and was ready to go to the cross I've overcome the world he hasn't even gone to the cross yet he knows he'll be on the cross the victory's won consider in the next chapter John 17 verse 4 as he's praying that high priestly prayer unto his father he says I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do it was as good as done, in other words. And because he can say that, we know then that he knows in his own heart, in his own mind, because the victory is won in God, in Christ. For us, we have to see him go to the cross. But in his heart, before he even gets arrested before he's, he's even taken. He already says, I finished the work. So on that cross, when he died, one of his last statements is, it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. What's more important to understand is, it is finished means also, I've won. And those who believe win with me. We've won the victory on the cross. That's how precious the cross is. Finally, verse 15 deals with the proclamation of the gospel that shuts the mouths of the guilty. Paul would infer that this was the preaching of the gospel to the Gentile nations. He uses this particular term in, in uh, the passage in Romans 15, verses 20 and 21, when he says, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. So this is... Certainly a, an interpretation of, of this particular passage in verse 15 when it says, For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. So Paul is, is, is saying here that this was the preaching of the gospel to the Gentile nations. When he says kings, or verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them, they shall see. And then if you go before that in Romans 3.19, there's also that thought 
and, and in the reference, and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now that's a clarification. Why are mouths stopped? Because you begin to realize that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we have nothing to say. <laughs> we have nothing to say in our defense. Why? Because we sinned. We've broken the law of God. Our mouths are stopped. Now today people argue with God. <laughs> they find it easy to argue with God. And, 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 well, this wasn't so bad. Or this isn't so bad. What I'm doing, I miss, you know. But you see, even the littlest sin is sin. Even the littlest thing can send a person to eternal damnation, eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. The littlest thing. This is why, again, it is so important for us to realize the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I wonder, I wonder how much blood Jesus shed that day I'm not trying to get medical or or scientific I'm sure there have been studies and and uh, all kinds of tests done of one sort or another but if you consider once again the suffering of Jesus on the cross the suffering that he had to endure before he even got to the cross. You know that many people say that, that most people would not have even gotten to the cross. Many would have died under the lashes that had been given to Jesus. The beatings would have been enough for them to die right at that point in time. And, and the Gospels in no way, shape or form tell us that that they took it easy on Jesus either. I mean, we're talking about the hatred of the world was upon this precious Lamb of God that was being sacrificed, offered up for the sins of the world. Not just for the sins of the Jew. Not just for the sins of, of believing Gentiles. The sins of the world. I mean, that, that's, that's a tremendous thought. And the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to pay the price for our sin. How much blood pays for that price? We can certainly believe that on the cross, from head to toe, Jesus was just one bloody, one bloody mess. Think of the, the crown of thorns. We're not talking about little, you know, little crown thing that kind of sits on top. But something that had maybe two to three inches of, of uh Thorns on, on a on some kind of a uh, you know bush thing that they pulled out all these thorns and and then shaped it. You know, can you imagine how they had to shape it? To, they didn't want to hurt themselves doing it, but they did. They didn't mind putting it on his head and driving it into his head because they had to drive it into his head. The pulling of the beard, so from head to toe, the beatings all over his body. Crucifixes don't uh, give the, uh, the gospel account uh, any justice whatsoever. I often wonder too about the uh, scene at the end of the movie Ben-Hur. There's a stream, there's rain coming down, 
and the water carrying now the blood of Jesus symbolically certain lepers are healed but I think the greatest understanding of that is that that still doesn't give us a picture of how much blood was shed for the sins of man But Paul said, whatever, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all, to know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nothing to say. Who's going to be able to stand on that day and, you know, let's say before the great white throne judgment, there's two different judgments, of course, there's the, uh, there's the great white throne judgment that uh, will come for all those who have not believed in God. And uh, then there's the, the mercy seat judgment where believers stand before the Lord. But the great white throne judgment where everyone will stand before God for the things that they've done without Christ. And can you, can you just imagine that there's, there will never be an argument. You're not going to have Rosie O'Donnell, you know, arguing with God. She'll argue with everybody else on TV. I'm just, it's just the name, you know, that came up. Uh, I would hope and pray that she comes to know Jesus Christ because if she doesn't, she's in a lot of trouble. People like that, you know, they 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 they, they find their, their their places where they can get an audience. But I tell you what, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, there's, there's not going to be a, a mouth open. Who can open their mouth when your whole life is placed before you? You see, the lives of a believer in Jesus Christ standing before the Lord. What will be seen more than anything else is the blood of Jesus Christ upon every believer. Your sins have been washed away. Even today, the enemy stands before the Lord accusing his people. And the Lord says, all I see is the blood of my son. Boy, don't we have a lot to be thankful for? We have so much to be thankful for. You know, there is a, a need to clarify what the message of the gospel is in light of, of verse 15 of, 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 of chapter 52. Because it is indeed generally inclusive. It, 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 uh, the message isn't this. And, and I think this is a good help for us. The message isn't this. Christ died. That's not the message. That's not the message of the gospel. Christ died. The message of the gospel, the, well, by the way, Christ died. That, that, that's just a, a fact of history, isn't it? But the true gospel message, the true message of Jesus Christ is this. Christ died for our sins. That's the message. It isn't Christ died. That's just a fact. The message is Christ died for our sins. That is the message. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, when, he, when he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the, that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, and notice, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. But you'll notice that Paul said that Christ died for our sins. That's the message. And when that is rejected... When that is rejected finally, then there will be no hope. Until then, there's still hope. 
But until that happens, we need to let people know that Jesus died for their sins. The sprinkling that is mentioned in verse 15, by the way, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle there can also be translated to startle. <laughs> so you might even read it, so shall he startle many nations. And I suppose that uh, they would be startled by some sense of cleansing by blood. <laughs> but it refers to ceremonial cleansing, pointing to acceptance. Ceremonial cleansing always points to acceptance. You couldn't go into the temple area without having first gone through a temple uh, cleansing, as it were, or the ritual uh, cleansing in the mikvah, the, you know, the ceremonial baths before you could enter in. So if you didn't do that, then you weren't accepted to come in. So, so cleansing was a point of acceptance. And, and still is in some cases. But because of Christ's sacrifice, the world can be told that forgiveness and redemption are offered free of charge to all that receive Him. Therefore, there is acceptance. You know, a lot of times we say, have you, or we ask a person, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now, there's some truth to that statement, but it's not completely what we need to say. We can say, have, we, have you accepted the truth of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the gospel and the gospel message? Have you accepted it as fact and as true that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins? Have you accepted that truth? It's not as if we say, you know, I've accepted Jesus as if I, you know, I accept, uh, you know, some, uh, some form of understanding or whatever. But the fact of the matter, too, is that we are called to receive Christ. Now, in, in essence... It's him, receive, him accepting us. Maybe the question we ought to ask people is, Hey, has Jesus accepted you yet? <laughs> has Jesus accepted you? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? And has He accepted you into His kingdom? I think that's a better question. I think that's more biblical. I mean, I'm not telling you not to ask somebody if they have accepted Christ. But, but remember, have they accepted the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In fact, once we come to the Lord, He's accepted us. He's, a, he's brought us into His kingdom. We didn't deserve to go into His kingdom. And the Bible makes it clear, every believer in Jesus Christ today is sitting in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. We're sitting there in heavenly places, even though we're here right now. So the fact is that we've been accepted accepted in the beloved there's a term to look up tonight you can find it and, and, and read it accepted in the beloved it's a beautiful passage but the world can be told then that forgiveness and redemption are offered free of charge to all that receive them and that's, you know, that's pretty startling to many people that it's free of charge because the price was paid on Calvary. The price was paid at the cross. What was the price? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Peter uh, refers to the sprinkling, as it were, when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And notice, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. I, I, I hope you noticed here the statement that was made includes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's sanctification in the Spirit, the foreknowledge of God the Father, and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a tremendous thought to see here. There's, there's a reference and an, uh, and an inference to the Trinity. But Peter mentions for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The sprinkling of the blood. It's been offered for acceptance. It's the cleansing. Okay, so... 
when you think of baptism, you know, there are some certain parts of the church that say, well, you know, you can't be saved until you're baptized. The Bible doesn't teach that, by the way. The Bible teaches that you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There are some people who have to be baptized. That would make it a work. If you have to be baptized to be a Christian, then that's a work. And he says, not by works, lest any man should boast. But baptism is, is a commandment to uh, give expression of what has happened already inside of a person. And, and, and so it is a symbolic, but it, it isn't what saves you. The water, of course, is not what saves you. Some sprinkle water. <laughs> so that's what brought that up, you know, there's the sprinkling part of it. Well, anyway, with all that in mind, with all that we just looked at in those three verses, then this brings us now to Isaiah 53, a chapter that deals with the humiliating suffering of, of Messiah. We've talked a lot about that tonight already without even getting into the other verses. But uh, Jesus' life and ministry are accurately described within these 12 verses. Jesus' life and ministry are, are described here in Isaiah 53 in particular, verses 1, and, 1 through 3. His death is seen in verses 4 through 8. His death in... Uh, I'm sorry, his... his uh, his burial in, in uh, verse 9 is what I meant to say, uh, to say. His burial in verse 9, while his resurrection and exaltation are described in verses 10 through 12. But, but the thread that flows throughout the whole of this tapestry is that the sinless Son of God, the, the pure Lamb of God, the innocent servant of the Lord died in the place of the guilty. And once again it brings us to the thought that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The Lord died in the place of the guilty. We may not be able to understand, much less explain everything about the cross of Jesus Christ, but one thing is clear. He took the place of guilty sinners and paid the ultimate price for their salvation. He took the place of guilty sinners and paid the ultimate price for their salvation. So when you read verse 1 now, when it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed our report? Two questions, very important questions. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, it could be thought that the who in the first question of this verse is pointing to the prophet Isaiah speaking on behalf of all the prophets who proclaim the message of the coming Messiah. That is... The reports of the prophets, John the Baptist even, even including Christ's own report of himself, whatever it was that Jesus said of himself. Some have said this is what Isaiah is speaking on behalf of. The Jews did not receive this report, which was the reason that Jesus was not seen as the promised Messiah. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. So the report had gone out. Who believes this report? So is it the prophet that is saying that? On behalf of all the other prophets. Old Testament and New Testament. Who are the New Testament prophets? There were actually really Old Testament prophets as well. But John and Jesus. But as you read on now, as you read on, you have to realize that there is more than one person speaking on behalf of others. We have to look at the whole context. We have to look at the whole phrase or the whole passage, the whole text itself. In fact, when you read verse 6, and this is one reason why we began reading verses 1 through 6, when you, be, when you read verse 6 itself, it is evident that all Israel is making a public confession. Israel is making a public confession. Look at verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We, we, you see that word? We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So consider that when the pronoun we is used in a prophecy, it, it usually, if not always, refers to all of Israel. 
Take, for example, in Isaiah 42. Just going back a little bit, but in Isaiah 42, verses 23 and 24, it says, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, He against whom we have sinned? We have sinned. You see that? For they would not walk in His ways, nor were they obedient to His law. If you go forward now to Isaiah 64, verse 6, a familiar verse to many, it says, But we are all like an unclean thing. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Notice, we, our, we, our, we, or us. And so there is that understanding here. That this is Israel that is actually asking the question. Who's believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And as we look at the next part of the verse, verse 1, where it says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We find a line that seems to be a little bit out of place here. Because the arm of the Lord is a picture of His strength and power and might. And yet we will see a Messiah that is weak and suffering. The question itself was certainly valid though. In the days of Jesus Christ and His apostles, and as is evident from the references to it, for example, if you turn to John 12 for just a moment, And verses 37 and 38, it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, notice, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the strength, power, and might of the Lord been revealed? But who has believed our report? Think of Romans 10, verse 16, where it's used again by Paul when he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed? Our report. So now we have these options here. Is it the prophet speaking on behalf of other prophets? It's very possible. Is it Israel itself saying, Who's believed our report? Or is it Isaiah, as Paul says, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? The truth of the matter is, is that they're all valid. But the question will carry greater significance, and we're going to end with this thought here right now. The question will carry greater significance when the end time remnant will one day look at Israel's long-standing stubborn unbelief. For stiff-necked Israel refused for many centuries to have anything to do with a humiliated and exalted Jesus. And hence, the arm, the saving power of Almighty God, Messiah, was not revealed to her. She did not believe and therefore Israel was not saved. Now Paul does go on to say later on that Israel will be saved. But he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But I don't want to leave you hanging on that particular thought so I want you to look at the rest of the passage there in John chapter 1. And we're going to close with that right now. He came unto his own. His own did not receive him. But to as many as received him. Verse 12. To them he gave the right. The privilege. To become children of God. 
to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know from Romans chapters 9 through 11 that Paul had a tremendous love for his own people Israel and prayed with great hope and believed with great hope that Israel would be saved. When you read the prophets and you see that Jesus when he comes again will place his feet upon the Mount of Olives and when he does come every eye shall see him. Even those that pierced him. Those that rejected him. Those that rejected both his humiliation and his exaltation. They shall see him and they shall weep. But he comes for them. To set them free. Because he hasn't forgotten his people. Israel. Now, we have just benefited of all that God came to do for His own people. We have benefited because we're verse 12. As many as received Him, both Jew and Gentile, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the privilege, and may I say the undeserved privilege to become children of God. That is why we can say that He is truly our Father. I I don't uh, believe in a... What is it? uh, The statement, the universal brotherhood uh, of man and the fatherhood of God, you know. God is everybody's Father. Jesus made that clear when He says, you know, to the unbelievers, He said... You just, you know, you just follow your father, the devil. <laughs> so there's two fathers. Jesus made that clear. The important thing is we have a father. We've sung that song, we have a maker. He calls us his very own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. And he knows your name. That a beautiful thing. You're not a number to the Lord. He didn't die for numbers. He died for souls. He died for people made in His image to bring us back to knowing who made us and who will keep us unto eternity. Let's pray.